Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. John Kelly, are you there? Hey, Nick. Here I am. Hi, everyone. It's your host, Nick Bilton, and we are on Inside the Hive. I decided this week, you know what? I'm so sick of Donald Trump. We're going to go talk about something way more fun and who some, you know, and maybe, maybe even richer. Um, I went to Silicon Valley and spent time with someone who, uh, uh, who's been doing this for a long, long time in the tech world. And uh, before I tell you who it is, I want to ask you a question. If I, if you started a little startup in a coffee shop one day, and a couple of years later, Facebook came along and said, hey, you know what? Your startup's pretty cool. I want to offer you $100 million for it. What would you say? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, That's and it. followed by now. Well, well, the person that I sat down with this week, Dennis Crowley, um, who started Foursquare, uh, also a company called Dodgeball, which he sold to Google many years earlier, not for $100 million, had that exact uh, encounter with Facebook and Yahoo, and I almost called them Yoohoo there, um, and then also had an opportunity years later to sell the company for, for a lot more uh, in the maybe like in the half a billion dollar range and turned it down. Uh, and I just wanted to go talk to him about what it was like to start a company like that and see it go to where it went today. Well, even though I would have definitely taken both of those offers, Nick, and I suspect that you might have entertained them for a second or two yourself, I have a lot of respect for these entrepreneurs, and, and Evan Spiegel's a, a good example of a modern one, who do not fold when um, when Facebook and other behemoths come knocking on their door, that they seem to recognize that what they have in in, in both their product roadmap and also their sort of abiding vision for the operation is um, is more valuable under their control than it would be in the hands of a of a, an oligarchic company. And and you know so uh, good for good for Dennis Crowley. It's a, a sort of unfathomable question for most people. But if, if you are a you know a legit straight up Silicon Valley nerd, you know who, who believes in what you're doing, then. Owning the the direction of your company is, is often as important as the money involved. Well, let's get started. Um, I had a really fascinating conversation with him. We talked about um, you know how building startups, uh, what it's like when you kind of have a bunch of money and you feel lost. Um, uh, how he decided not to sell Foursquare. Uh, he now owns a small soccer team, uh, in addition to uh, being on the board at, at Foursquare. Um, and we got into uh, one of one of my favorite questions: Why are so many people in Silicon Valley assholes? So uh, let's jump right in. So I am here at the Foursquare offices in San Francisco, California, with uh, Dennis Crowley, who I've known for how long? Have I known you, Dennis? Probably. 10 years, right? Maybe, maybe a little more. Yeah. Maybe 701 years. Um, <laughs> uh, um, just for the people listening, because I know you can't see, this is like one of those, if you imagine a San Francisco, New York startup with, you know, free snacks and sodas and 
um, uh, sriracha hot sauce on the tables uh, and lots of big screens that look really cool. Uh, that's where we are right now. Um, so Dennis was, let's, De- you want to do the intro? Let's, let's have you do the intro. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Dennis Crowley. I'm the co-founder and executive chair of Foursquare. Yeah. Foursquare is a location intelligence company. We build uh, tools and software that, um, you know, enable all sorts of different companies to be able to do interesting things with location technology. Uh, Wait, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. If you can hear the traffic outside... I apologize, but, but just think of it as like you're in the room with us. Sorry, keep going, Dennis. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, you know, I've been, we started Foursquare in 2009. Company, there it says, company's about 250 people. Um, we have a handful of offices kind of sp- scattered around the world. Um, I've been doing kind of location technology work, I think, almost my whole career. I had a company before this that was called uh, Dodgeball, which is our grad so that's, school. So I'm actually going to interrupt you, and we're yeah. going to go back to Dodgeball. <clears throat> yeah. So Dodgeball sold to Google in what, 2000? 2005. 2005. And you yeah. were how old? 12? <laughs> I think I was, uh, it was 20, it was just before my 27th birthday. Okay, so um, just before your 27th birthday. Is that so, right? I, maybe. I don't, I'd have to do the math. Let's just, let's just pretend 27. Okay. 26, you're 26. Um, and um, so one of the things that's so interesting is I think a lot of people, this is not a lot of people that sell a company, and never mind the one that they sell to Google. What is that process like? You, you came up with this thing, this, this, you know, you can give us 140 character or 280 characters since we're now in that world version of what it was. But, but does someone just like knock on your door and they say, hey, I, I, I want to buy your company. Uh, here's, here's a bag full of money. Like, how does it work? <laughs> I, I wish it was that easy. We were, we were students at, uh, you know, we were grad students at NYU at this program called ITP. Um, and we were just making weird stuff for phones. Um, you know, we had this kind of thesis that like, we could make software that made cities easier to use, which is kind of a radical idea at the time. And the way that we would do that is we would put software on cell phones. Which and these are a, these are old cell phones. These this are is not. this is a flip phone, a flip phone, no no web browser, no color screen, no apps, no no GPS. But um, you know, I was reading the Harry Potter books at the time. And the idea of the Marauder's map, like you, Harry Potter has this map and you can see where all your friends are. It's like, well, we should, that'd be cool if we had that in New York. How would you even make the, the, like the scrappiest version of that? And we said, well, we'll just do it with text messages. Uh, so people would broadcast a location. Hey, I'm at the library. Hey, I'm at a bar called The Magician. And everyone would get those text messages. And you know, this is in a time when not a lot of people got text messages, especially text messages from software. And so if you got one of those messages, you, you would drop whatever you were doing and you'd run to the bar to go meet your friends. It's just kind of the way that it worked. Um, and so we built this thing, which is super weird and, and quirky, and it worked really well in New York. And many people said, like, no one will ever want that or pay for it. There's no business there. Um, and so we just kept plugging away at it as grad students. Um, I remember, like, we didn't know how to raise venture capital. It wasn't a lot of VC firms in New York. We didn't have access to those people. But, you know, I spoke at a conference out in San Francisco once, and I I think NYU paid my way out to go there. And while we were speaking, we caught the attention of some folks that worked at Google. And, you know, eventually that led to being invited to the Google office in San Francisco back in, like, 2004, super, super early, pre-IPO. 
and going there and, and explaining our thesis project and explaining the stuff that we were ex really excited about to them, which was, that's, that was awesome. That's like the, the best audience you could have. And, um, you know, after a bunch of those conversations, it came down to like, hey, Google doesn't really invest in companies, but if you guys are really passionate about building this type of stuff, you should just, you know, come here. Like, how about we just buy your company and you can come and work at Google? So, and, so that's it. They're like, we'll just buy it. Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the, at the time, me and my, my co-founder, Alex, like, we were trying to figure out, like, what, what should we do in New York to pay our rent later this summer? <laughs> like, should we go, should I go get a job at MTV? Should, should I go try to work at an ad agency and be the internet guy there? Like, so this was, this was, like, the best thing you could possibly imagine, because it's a scenario in which, wait, 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 you're going to pay us a bunch of money to come to your company to eat all the free food that everyone you know, knows Google for, and to, to work on the project that we love working on. Like, this is a great deal. 100% we will do this. And so then, so then what was the next step? They, they bought the company, they paid you money, and then you just went over there? Or? Yeah, it was, it was like, um, it wasn't a high priority for them. It's like, it wasn't a huge dollar transaction. And so, you know, it, like it took a long time. It took, I want to say it took like six or seven months for us to have like a full discussion about like, should we come here? Like, where will we work? Who will be our manager? What will we do? We'll work in the New York office. So, so how does it work when, and I know this was not a huge, uh, you know, this wasn't a hundred million dollar uh, acquisition, but, but it was a few million bucks. And, and you, does it, is it literally like you look at your ATM one day and you're like, oh, I have four dollars, and then the next day you're like, oh, I have seven digits in there. Like, or is there like a system that they pay you in a certain amount, and then you get all the stock, and you have to wait, or the vest? Like, how does it? How did it work? Generally, it's like there's 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 some cash component, yeah, um, in which we got like one lump sum of cash, and I remember going to the ATM and like I'm going to print out five ATM receipts and <laughs> save them, so I remember how awesome this was. Um, and then, you know, some of it is, is tied to an, an earnout. Like if you, you know, accomplish these things at the company that like you, you unlock additional cash and some of it is in, in Google stock. So we were, you know, we got Google stock, uh, we joined right, you know, not too long after the IPO, uh, and we vested on a, a schedule just like everyone else would, would vest. And did you ever, did you ever meet Larry and Sergey? Uh, yeah, not during, not so much during like the acquisition process. Like we, remember we were just a two person company, so not super high priority. Yeah. Um, and you know, now they call them aqua hires, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of acquisitions. I think we were the company that when we got picked up by Google, someone coined the term aqua hire. Um, but you know, like in the first couple months that we were in Google, New York, I remember Sergey rollerblading into our little cubicle office and poking his head in and saying like, hey, you guys are the, uh, the snowball guys, right? And I was like, <laughs> we're the dodgeball team. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Keep doing great work. And then he skated off. That was the last you ever saw of him? No, I, I've, I've seen him a bunch of times <clears throat> since, since then. But it's like a funny first meeting for, you know, a mythical character. Right? Yeah, this is the guy that invented Google. And here he is on his rollerblades in our office. Like, that's a that's a... Cool it's, story. It's funny when you hear these stories and you think about the TV show Silicon Valley. It, it is pretty <laughs> accurate, uh, pretty accurate portrayal. So, okay, so, so you sold your company. How long did you stick around at Google for? Uh, we were there for about two years. Uh, and then, and then you, did you retire, like mini retire? Like what, what, what happened no, next? I mean, we, we had really ambitious plans for like the types of things that you could do with dodgeball and with like kind of the information and the data that the product was generating. 
Um, but we never, I don't think Google was set up at the time for us to really be able to pursue a lot of those things. It just wasn't like on Google's roadmap. So like when we left, we were, we were pretty like upset and disappointed. Like this is this project that we really, really cared about, we were very passionate about. And we went there to, to build this thing with, and get help in building it. Um, but we, we couldn't build the things that we wanted to. So it was like a sad day leaving. Um, just because we, we left the project behind, like they had acquired it. Like that was my only email address, Dems at Dodgeball, and, and I left that email address behind and I wasn't able to access it. You know, this, you, this community of users that loved what we were doing and loved the kind of, you know, R&D approach we had to just building stuff and launching it for the hell of it, like we had to leave all that behind. <clears throat> and so I, I left and, you know, I ended up working at, um, a, uh, some friends had like a game design shop called Area Code and I worked there for, um, you know, like eight months or so, just trying to get myself back into something. And I, I had a hard time falling in love with some of those projects. And, you know, it, it, it was probably about two years after we, not two years, but 18 months after we left Google, where, um, you know, they, they had made an announcement that they were going to turn Dodgeball off and they just weren't going to support it anymore. And then that was like this kind of cathartic moment where it's like, if they really don't want it, like, let's just build another one. We'll build a better one. Like, we'll take everything that we wanted to do and we'll do it now that like things like the iPhone exist. And now that people understand how to and use things like, you know, like Facebook. And that was the beginning of Foursquare. Yeah. Yeah. That was us getting, it was like uh, January 2009 where we really sat down and said, okay, let's get, let's get serious about this and let's, let's make something. So one of the things that's really interesting, just to get back to before we get to Foursquare and what you're doing now and everything, um, uh, and I want to hear some good stories of like fundraising and all those fun things. But um, before we get to that, one of the things a lot of people think is is they look at at people that have been successful in Silicon Valley, and I say Silicon Valley just in terms of the tech tech industry itself, and they think, oh, wow, they sold their money, their company for a bunch of money. Why aren't they sitting on a beach or or you know, mountainside or something like that. Um, and the thing that from people I have spoken to over the years that I always get the impression is that it's not about the money. Um, it's about the building the thing. You went through something like that, right? You, you left Google, you, uh, you went, you were like a ski bum for six months or something. Is that right? Or uh, well, I, I took another job right after that. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, just to like, I have to be doing something. And, um, you know, I was there for, I don't know, six or six or seven months. And then after that, I was just like, I'm just going to take some time off. Like, I, I traveled for, you know, went around Scandinavia with my college roommate for, like, 30 days. I did a, a summer share out in, um, out in Montauk, and I, I surfed, like, a whole bunch of days. And I just was kind of aimless. But I was... Um, I was kind of depressed, to be honest, because like the I wasn't doing anything, and I had all these things that I wanted to build, and all these ideas that we didn't get to fulfill with Dodgeball, and it was like, what am I doing, just kind of sitting here? It sounds glamorous, but it's not if you've got all the stuff you want to do. Do you think that that, because <clears throat> I've heard other people in tech that have sold their companies and have been through that same thing, this like this aimlessness and this like depressed almost, and uh, do you think that that is something uh, something that is is just the like tied to people like you with your personality that are building things, or do you think that anyone put in that situation where they didn't have to work in that moment in time would feel the same way? Uh, I think people get energy from doing different things, and some people like get it 
some people might get it from like consuming media or creating media, reading books, like watching movies and things. Like I, I get energy from creating things. And I think I'm, I'm still trying to figure this all out for myself, but I think it's about like building things that bring people together and bring, you know, building things that people get enjoyment out of like users and communities and stuff. And in the absence of doing that type of creation, I get really like, like itchy, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's a, like really, I get really dissatisfied and really restless. And it, like, it's, it's, it took me a while to kind of self-diagnose it as like, I think I was just depressed during that time, you know, and I remember having my buddies, you know, come over and they, they could tell I wasn't like myself because I wasn't working on a project and being like, don't worry, someday you'll find something that you want to work <laughs> on again. Like, we, we know you will. Like, trying to, you know, give me a pep talk. And that was, you know, that's like three months before the Foursquare journey started. So, okay, so let's, let's move forward to, to Foursquare. Um, uh, I remember I actually was in New York um, at the time, and we, we had uh, become friends. And uh, there was a coffee shop over by NYU, uh, <clears throat> and I would see you and your co-founder, Naveen, uh, in the coffee shop, I think I was writing a book at the time. I, I forget what, what as I was one doing. does, or yeah. just looking at porn in a <laughs> yeah. coffee shop. I don't know, but um, uh, but I remember sitting next to you guys, and it was just you two. It was just the two of you building this thing, and um, uh, and you created all these, you know, gaming incentives and mayorships and things like that. Um, and then, of course, and then next thing you know, you know, uh, it it almost seems like a flash flood. But but Foursquare was the thing that all anyone could talk about. Um, yeah. uh, Facebook was terrified of it. Twitter was worried about it. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was the thing and location-based services were the thing. And, you know, uh, you were on the cover of, of Wire with a crown hat, crown on. Um, what, Unfortunately, the, a true story. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what is that like being the like center of that that little universe for for a minute? What is that experience like? What do people are they just trying to be your friend so they can get money into your company to make money? Is it like what's going on? Yeah, it was it was rather overwhelming. I think that was you know that was our lives for like two years, where you had like everyone wanted to work at the company and everyone wanted to do a partnership with the company and everyone wanted to put money into the company. And, you know, you just end up at, um, you know, interesting dinners with interesting people. And, you know, it's just, it was just, it was incredibly overwhelming. And what's interesting is that like that, it's so funny that like, that's the way that you remember the story of like, you know, Foursquare at launch. And it was just like the hottest thing around. Right. But like, you know, we started Foursquare January, 2009. We launched it at South by Southwest in March of 2009, about 5,000 people cared about it. And then we went out to try to raise money off that. And for six months, you know, I had 32, 33 people said, no, this is an awful idea. We will never invest in this. Why are you doing this? You're wasting your time. You already did this thing. Google didn't want it. And, and we just kept working on it. And it wasn't until, you know, really like August of 2009 that, um, you know, that there was some, that, that there started to become some interest in what we were doing. 
And once there was some interest, and the, you know, the, one of the first VC firms to really show interest was, uh, was Union Square Ventures in New York. And, and once they decided they were interested, it was like this big switch, and then everyone was interested. And then when everyone was interested, it was un entirely unmanageable. Because uh, you go from like making a whole bunch of phone calls hoping someone will call you back to your phone just ringing all the time with people trying to do nice things for you so that you will choose them you know, for your financing. So what kind of things do people try to do to, you know, what nice things happened? We would, you know, like we, there's just a lot of like whining and dining and stuff. No, no, I think it, like we were, if, if I had not gone through like the humbling experience that was dodgeball, yeah. which was having this thing that I loved and then it, you know, it not working out and then going through this like weird depression phase and then having to resurrect the idea as Foursquare. I think if I had not gone through that humbling experience, I probably would have turned into like a huge asshole during the. Well, you're kind of an asshole. I think I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like it's crazy. No, when I can see just it. Like I see it happen to all assholes the, all the time. time. Yeah. yeah, and so I'm very thankful that we lived through that experience because I think it helped us figure out like, hey, we have something special here. Like, let's let's be slow and steady and cautious so that we don't. Um, we don't screw it up, right? Because this is like what we have is is special and important, and we need to make sure that we, you know, put the pieces together in a way that will work for us in the long term. And so, uh, so I, I remember back then uh, you coming out to San Francisco uh, to, to to raise money, and and you had like these all these funny stories of like I you uh, this was like I think Teslas weren't even out yet, and. And you had tweeted how much you would like to drive a Tesla, and then someone like take you to the Tesla track. Like what? Well, we were yeah, we were on Sand Hill Road, and um, you know, just seeing as many people as we could possibly see for fundraising. And is and it like, like is a, it like playing Monopoly where you're just like, oh, I'm going to go here, and then you go to the next building and the next building, and just meet with all these people? Kind of. You're just kind of scheduling things on the fly. And I remember I, I probably tweeted something out about like, oh, it'd be so cool to drive that around and then like the dealership tweets you back and say, hey, why don't you stop by in between meetings? And <laughs> so we did that and we did a lap around Sand Hill Road in between meetings. And I think, you know, we were late to our meeting with Twitter because we were screwing around with the Tesla on Sand Hill Road. You know, and I remember Business Insider wrote a story about it and it was like, you know, the, the fabulous life of what it's right, what it's like to be fundraising as the CEO of Foursquare, which you go back and you look at now, it's like, oh my God, this is just like out of control. <laughs> Um, but it was just, it was just kind of, it was just nuts, you know, it was just a very, very busy time where you're trying to build the company, you're trying to build, like literally build the product, like build the code and then build the company, hire these people and then, you know, get a good culture working so that everyone's psyched about what they're doing and then do all the external evangelism and then travel around and do the financing. It's just, it's just a lot. So uh, I, I've been writing about this stuff for a long time and have always found this fascinating about valuations. Um, uh, but I want to hear it from you, as someone who went through it. When you first got, when so you you're out here at that point in time. This is are you raising your your first round, your A round of funding. We um, we came out. Did we come out here? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we came out here for the A, but we ended up doing the A with O'Reilly and Union Square. It was the B that we we're like we want we want to do something with someone in San Francisco. So that's so you came out for the B. So with the A round, what were you valued at at the time? Um. Like five, ten million. Yeah, it was. It was some, yeah, five. But seven, for the maybe. B round, the number went up dramatically. Yeah, it right? might have gone up to like twenty or so. And so how? So the, okay, so you go to the B round. Is that right? I'd have to. I, gosh, I have to go back and. It, 
it's it's telling that I can't I can't remember, can't remember it. Yeah. But uh, at the time, of course, that's all anyone cared about. Um, uh, so you come out here and you're on Sand Hill Road and you're going for rides in Teslas and you're going to billionaires' houses for dinner yeah. and they're giving you free slippers and things like that. Um, you should tell that story at some point. Uh, hold on. The B, yeah. the B is at a, it's a $20 million raise at a $100 million valuation. Okay. It was a $20 million raise at a $100 million valuation. How do you get to that $100 million number? Like are you, when you go in, uh, you, have, you have no revenue. You have how many employees back then? A few dozen maybe? Yeah, tw- 20 um, or so, yeah. You're in a little, a little office in, you know, uh, in, in downtown New York City. Like how, does, how do you come up with that number? Uh, we we don't come up with it. People come up with it for us. But right? how, what what where does it come from? Um, well, that time you know around at South by Southwest 2010 when we were like the hottest thing you could you could imagine. Um, and remember, this is a time where there's there's just not a ton of startups. You know, if if you launched something, you were the story on TechCrunch for 30 days in a row because there just wasn't a ton of stuff to write about. Um, but no, like in you know, Yahoo expressed interest in buying the company, um, and I think they were the ones that came out with the the you know the number was around a hundred million dollars. That's what they wanted to buy it for. Yeah, and we're like, holy cow! Like that? Why would you not? Why would you not do that? Um, and, and so, why did you not do that? Um, well, then it was you know, Facebook was interested, and then it was VCs were interested in putting money into the company at that valuation. And this was a this was a really really hard decision to to make because if you were driven just by the fact that you wanted to have a financial exit, like you would a hundred percent take the money, um, because wh- why would you not? But like we had sold the we had sold a thing to Google before, and we had made a little bit of you know we've made money off of that, and I realized that like the money ultimately wasn't the thing that made made me happy. And the thing that made me happy was building things. And I was like, we have the opportunity to build something great. And it, it appears as if everyone in the world is looking at us as if we have the opportunity to build something great. So why would we, why would we give this up? Like, let's, let's go and build this. And I, I knew that like, if we had said yes to that and if we had sold the company, that there's a good chance we would have reg- regretted it later on for having this awesome moment in time and not have seen it all the way through. So... When Yahoo approached you to try to buy the company, did they just knock on your door and say, we really want this, this is what we're willing to offer? We, and- we had a meeting with them in, in, at South by Southwest, like 2010. I remember it just like we were coming off a crazy week of like everyone, you know, everyone using the, the product, um, you know, everyone kind of speculating about what we would be able to do in, with, um, with I rem- the I remember data I, and the, I was in the, the New York yeah, Times yeah. and... Uh, Jenna Wortham did a big story on you guys. We're on the front page of the business section. It was, you know, you were yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's it was super, it just really, really crazy time. Um, but and and it was a like I can't stress how hard of a decision it was to to say like you know we're not going to do this. We're going to we're not going to sell the company. We're going to take another round of financing, and we're going to just build something awesome. And so you tell Yahoo no, then Facebook comes knocking at your door. Uh, and you, you get the, the Mark Zuckerberg experience. What's what was that like? Um, it was. Um, you I mean, know, Mark was... is a incredibly intense human being who could probably convince me to. Mark was the Mark was naked. super super helpful, um, and I remember like I went to Facebook and I met with him. We had lunch in the cafeteria, 
And, you know, he's like, hey, if you want to sell the company, like, you should come, you, you should sell it to Facebook, because, like, we're, we're interested and excited about this stuff. And if you don't, like, here's 10 piece of, pieces of advice for how to go forward. And um, I, I thought that was just, like, super, like, it was super generous for him to spend time and kind of share a lot of that advice. And then just, like, it's, like, a classy thing to do. What was his advice? The, I'll tell you, the best piece of advice, which I, I've given to 100 people um, since then, is, like, Mark said, if you want to, you know, if you're going to continue, you know, being the CEO, you got to figure out what kind of CEO you want to be. And you can either be the product CEO, you can be the sales CEO, you can be the evangelist CEO, you can be the operations CEO, you can be the engineering CEO. You have to pick one of those, one of those types and just do that job really well and give and delegate the rest of the responsibilities to someone else. And like, I, I remember clear as day sitting down with him in like 2010 having that conversation and I was like, that's the only way to keep sane and doing this job and that's what... Like, that's what we did. So what, which CEO did you become? I was product CEO. Um, I hired, hired a COO, <clears throat> hired a chief revenue person, you know, started building a really strong engineering organization. Like, the, 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 like this that idea of you can be whatever type of CEO you want to be, but just pick the one that you want to be and do it really well and just make sure you're very clear in delegating everything else to the rest of your team. So you... Um, you decided to take the, the $20 million um, with a $100 million valuation. Um, and we'll, I'm going to jump forward and jump back for a second. There was a point when when Foursquare was worth a billion dollars. No, no, no. We never, we never got that. Close, got close to a billion dollars. Um, we, were, we were north of $500 million, yeah. North of five. So, And then it kind of went back down a yeah. little bit. And, and do you, looking back, regret the decision you made or no? No. I... I have no regrets about that because I, I think the you know this is this job has been and this experience has been the hardest thing I've ever done and I feel like I've made lots of sacrifices with like you know my life and personal experiences in general to, to, to be able to do it but it's been like a huge privilege to do it it's like the the best ride you could ever be on you know we built this huge company there's been like a thousand people that have worked at Foursquare at any given time. There's like a whole like Foursquare mafia that's gone on to do all these great things, and like we've we've inspired other entrepreneurs to like to go forward with the things that they want to do. Like I remember it being like a real conversation, like the around the time that we had turned down some of the offers, like you know being able to to really express to people like the point of this is not to build something and just sell it to the first big company that comes asking the point is to build something great and to be part of the ecosystem and be one of those be one of those companies that gets to contribute to you know like the the legacy of awesome you know tech and products that have been built over the course you know of the last 20 or 50 years and if you i i really believe if you sell the company and if you let go of it too early you d you don't get to be a part of that and, you know, at this point, 10 years through, like, it's very easy for me to articulate the, you know, the contributions that we've made and the good things that have come out of the company. And, you know, you can kind of Monday morning quarterback and be like, well, would we have got done more? Would we have done bigger if we were part of another company early on? And I, I just don't, I don't see how that could have been the case. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. John, this is a fascinating interview so far, but I want to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Goop. I hear you have been using Goop lately. I love Goop, and Goop loves me. Um, I uh, so 
I think it's a, a, a really cool brand. Um, I was actually out at the Goop store this week, which was really fun. Um, hmm. They have lots of fascinating stuff. But uh, did did I hear that you uh, you've been buying uh, uh, Rebecca, your wife, um, some stuff, and she's been she's been super duper into all this. Loves drinkable, single serving skin supporter with the whole inside out nutrition. It gives her a healthy complexion, you know, with all these powerful antioxidants, vitamin C, E. And more good stuff that I, I'm not even scientific enough to know. She loves it. I love it. I love doing it for her. It tastes delicious, too. The orange, the lemon, verbena. I mean, I could go on for days. The Goop Glow Morning Skin Super Powder actually does taste really delicious. I, uh, I've i been stealing them from Krista. Um, well, anyway, I think it's a fantastic brand. Um, they have great stuff. Their, their newsletter is really fun. It comes out twice a week. Uh, it talks about travel and food and beauty and style and work and of course, wellness. Um, they have this app that I've been download that I downloaded recently, which will tell you like the the greatest places in and around you that that also uh, offer those kinds of things. One thing that they're doing this week is that uh, Hive listeners um, will get a uh, uh, lots of cool options that they can buy off the website. Um, all they have to do is go to goop.com/hive. Uh, it's a special page just for Hive listeners. It's called goop.com/hive. That's G-O-O-P dot com slash H-I-V-E. So, okay, so so fast forward now a little bit. Um, the company continues to raise money and grow, and you've got, you know, tens of millions of users. Um, and then you kind of started to run into some bumps. Yeah. What was that like, and what what happened? Yeah, the, the, the trickiest thing, I guess, like, the in the, the whole Foursquare story is that, you know, we were a consumer app um, that people use to, like, check in and, and you know, earn earn points and badges and discounts and there's a city guy. Is everything kind of lumped into into one. And, um, you know, we were, we were valued as a consumer app would that continues to grow because, like, the other comps that were out there, it's like, okay, well, Facebook is growing really quickly, Twitter is growing quickly, Foursquare is going to be the next Twitter. But we just hit a point where we just stopped growing, you know, around like 30, 40 million users, you know, you're just, we just don't have that same type of growth. And we didn't have it because like things like Instagram are coming on the scene. Uh, Facebook decided to do a check-in button. Uh, Google was, you know, starting to take some of our elements and copy it into Google Maps. Like Zagat got really aggressive with trying to, you know, uh, with, um, I guess, cribbing off some of the things that we were doing. And so it, it, it kind of plateaued the growth. And if you're not growing, then you don't have a greater audience to sell ads to. And then it's like, well, well what's the plan? And so, you know, like the big moment for the company was realizing like, hey, like this thing, if it's going to continue and continue to be successful, it can't just be a consumer apps advertising based company. Like we have to be able to monetize the insights that we're getting from the data, like where, where all the devices are going, where all the like where are all these phones going in aggregate. And, you know, we had a moment where you know, all these people that were using our API uh, to build great things, but they weren't paying us for using the API. And I remember it came up at a board meeting, and you know, I think it was like Ben Hor- Horowitz from Jason Horowitz was like, it is absolutely crazy that you guys aren't charging people for the API. These companies need the service that you provide. And I remember being like, I don't think we can charge them because they'll just switch to something else. And um, you know, Ben was like, well, we, we have to try because we have to figure out a model that's around like data and technology licensing. And so that's what we went out and did. And sure enough, like, it turns out that lots of companies wanted to pay us for the privilege of either licensing the data or licensing the technology. And so now you're more, less of a consumer checking company and more of a 
a data company, a data analytics yeah, company? Yeah, we, we have two consumer apps. There's an audience of about 50 million people that, that, that use them, which is great. Um, you know, there's one app called the Foursquare City Guide, which is like a super smart, personalized version of Yelp. And then there's the Swarm app, which people use to check in. And, you know, there's a team that works on both of those, and we're very proud of both of the apps. Um, but the apps generate lots of data about, like, where do people go and where do people used to go and where do people go now and what's great about those places. And so what we do is we package up lots of the data that we have and, you know, we help companies make sense out of, like, this type of, like, foot traffic trends. Where are people going? Where do they used to be going? Which stores are hot? Which stores are not? How are your stores doing versus the other stores? Like, that stuff is really valuable to a lot of retailers. And didn't you – I remember you had a huge – there was a moment where I was, like, I saw kind of this holy shit moment when you – predicted what would happen with Chipotle, Chipotle. Yeah, yeah, we did. Can you tell that story? Yeah, the two, I think, well, this, it's the, the kind of the two big examples were, um, number one, could we, you know, when I think it was like the iPhone 5 or 6, maybe the iPhone 6, iPhone 6 came out, you know, Apple never tells you how many units they sell. It's like, we're going to make a prediction on how many they're going to sell by measuring the number of phones that go in and out of the stores um, and then to normalize that data and make a prediction on it. And, you know, we did so this a couple years ago. And, you know, we were kind of right on the money. Um, and we then, I remember that moment where a lot of people kind of turned their heads and looked at us like, wait, who is this company, Foursquare? Like this, this social app that's now making predictions about, like, you know, foot traffic trends and sales patterns. And then it was like, well, do it again. If it works so well, do it again. <laughs> and then it was, you know, like six months later, it was the Chipotle, you know, E. coli scare, right? So, like, you know, the... Wall Street is waiting, like, how much of the earnings going to be down based on the fact that people weren't eating there last quarter? It's like, well, why don't we make a prediction? Because we know, based on how many phones are going in and out of the Chipotles, and we made a prediction, and we nailed it as well. And it was then, like 30%, and then they literally said Yeah, we, we were like 29.7%, right? And the, the, the real interesting story behind this is, like, there was, you know, there's some people at Foursquare that came up... Um, to me and said, hey, I have this idea for we could be able to make these types of predictions with our data. And then they pitched it to me, and I, you know, I, was, I was CEO at the time. I was like, I don't know if this is what we're supposed to be doing. Like, that seems like <laughs> it's someone else's business. But I'm like, if you feel really passionate about it, like, go model it out. Go see what it is. And then let's look at it as like an executive team, and we'll look at it with the PR people, and we'll decide if we want to do that. And like, you know, that was, that's you know, someone else's idea that comes to the leader, the CEO, with a crazy idea. And instead of shutting it down, it's like, let's, let's try it. Let's go, go ahead with it. And, you know, the history of Foursquare, the company, is full of, like, people having these kind of oddball ideas and us rolling the dice with them. Well, is that the history of Silicon Valley? I think so, yeah. But it's, it's like, I, I've certainly worked at places where I've brought up the oddball ideas and people are like, that's stupid. We're definitely not going to do that. And it's like, well, why wouldn't we at least try it, right? And so, you know, when we built Foursquare, the company, we built it with, like, okay, anyone, if they're an intern or, like, a VP, can come to one of the executives and pitch their crazy idea, and we will listen to it, right? And that was, you know, like, that trying to build a culture like that and trying to, like, stay true to that was directly related to, like, our previous experiences working at jobs where that type of feedback wasn't welcome. So today... There's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and big data and, you know, and uh, being able to predict things. And, you know, one theory that we're hearing a lot is that, that companies like Amazon, for example, will know when you need diapers for your kid and they will just drop them off at your doorstep. They just bought Ring this week and maybe they'll just be able to open the door and put them in, put <laughs> them away. In. Maybe they will just take the baby and bring it back <laughs> yeah. with a new diaper on. 
Um, <clears throat> I would subscribe to that service. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, actually. Uh, especially at six in the morning. Um, uh, what do you think that we're gonna like all this data that we have? Um, do you think that we are gonna get to that point where 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 companies start to predict things and we, and we as consumers no longer have to think about them? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, we're kind of already there, right? Doesn't Netflix tell you what show to watch next? And doesn't Spotify tell you which playlist to listen to tomorrow? But that's those are yes, but I think that those are those are with digital digital things, not necessarily digital experiences, not necessarily yeah. which restaurant I should go to and when yeah. and so on. I mean, so this forth. is like a core, uh, like part of Foursquare's DNA, right? Can we make a piece of software that points you towards something that you never would have done otherwise? You had no intention of doing, but you loved it anyway. Um, and you know, that was part of the thinking in 2009 and we're still kind of scratching the itch of solving that problem. But yeah, I, I definitely believe in that stuff. You know, I don't, I don't think it's, um, you know, like we, we've gone as far to prototype things where it's like you could, you know, if you blocked off uh, a night on your calendar and let Foursquare know about, okay, okay, I, I blocked off this Tuesday night slot, go book me some surprise restaurant that I'll love, find an open table and, and I'll go there. Like, could we build stuff like that? And then, you know, and... Would you uh, order for me too? And well, I mean, that's one of the things that we try to do, right? When you, if you have Foursquare on your phone and you walk into a restaurant, there's a good chance you will get a notification that's like, hey, while you're here, you need to order, you know, this appetizer, this, this, uh, you know, this entree and this dessert. I actually right? do follow it and it's always right. It's, it's awesome, right? It's always right. Yeah. So no, it's like, it really can is. you hit the person? Can, and that's a very hard technical problem to solve. Like yeah. identify the place the user's at, see if it's an interesting place to them, try to figure out what on the menu they would like, and then hit them with that message before they, they make the decision on their own. But if that's like, if, if, you could, if you could do that and make it work really, really well, like that, those are magical experiences for people. So you mentioned earlier that if you hadn't have gone through the dodgeball experience um, of selling your company and, and realizing that that wasn't the right decision to make, that you would, you would have ended up being an asshole. And <laughs> one of the th things about Silicon Valley is there are a lot of assholes. Uh, there are a lot of CEOs that are douchebags that, you know, don't necessarily care about the consumer or their employees or the society or the technology and how it impacts them and and so on. Why do you think that 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 there are so few people? I mean, if you ask me to put to list people that I that run companies out here that are good people, it's. I mean, the list is going to fit on my hand. Honestly, um, do you? Why do you think that that is the case? I think it's. You know, we've we've lived through the experience. I've lived through the experience of scaling the company from like two people to two hundred and fifty people, and you know that we've done that over ten years. That's like that's a that's a, a two hundred fifty person company is a big company, but you know by comparison's sake out here by a lot of the tech big tech companies in, in San Francisco, it's relatively small. We don't have thousands of employees, um, and I think we found it's it's. It is very chaotic to scale a company from 20 to 50 to 100 people. We've been fortunate that we've been, you know, between 175 and 200, 250 people for, for a while. Like, we operate at this scale really, really well. And it, it, 
I think it makes it easier for us to focus on the things that are important to us, which is, you know, let's make sure that we're treating everyone's privacy with respect. Let's make sure that we build apps that surprise and delight people. Let's make sure that we build technology that inspires another generation of entrepreneurs, right? And I, that's, that's the stuff that's important to us. And these bigger companies are just going so quickly and are so worried about competition that they don't necessarily think those things through? Or? Maybe, or, or it's like the pressure to get as big as you possibly can. You know, like we, we lived through that moment of getting as big as you possibly can, and it was, it was chaotic and not like, I mean, it's like a whirlwind, but it's not, it's not necessarily a ton of fun. Um, you know, when I think like we're at the stage now where we're scaling a business that works, which is, I think it's a different journey than just like get as big as you can as quickly as possible. So you've you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of a lot of big VCs and and you know you had that great advice from from Zuckerberg. Like, what's some of the best advice that you've gotten from some of these folks? Um, oh, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, you get different types of investors give you different types of advices of advice. A lot of it's very operational, like. You know, we have a we have an amazing board of directors, and the best part about them is like they're like you know they call them high quality investors, which means like they they have sat on the boards of other high quality companies, and they've seen like high class problems, and they understand how to solve those problems, right? By sitting in the boardroom of a Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or Etsy or Salesforce or whatever, you know, you 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 get a sense of like okay, these are the problems that companies have, and here's a menu of ways that you would be able to to deal with those with those problems, um, hey executive team at Foursquare, here's you know how are you going to do it? Here's a menu of solutions. Which one are you going to choose? That's just, it's just really really helpful to have that. Um, you know, o overall, I'll tell you the two best pieces of advice have come from my parents, oh, okay. right? And my mom telling me like when we were working on on we wanted to work on the dodgeball stuff and everyone was telling us it was a stupid idea she's just like you should just do the thing that you love and the rest of the stuff will just figure it out which is it sounds like the cheesiest like corniest advice but it's like permission to go work on the wild thing that crazy thing that just is personally interesting and you know if you do that for long enough there's a good chance that other things will just happen around it and that has been true for every single project i've ever worked on including the soccer stuff right um the second stuff is, um, you know, my, my dad in the early days of Foursquare when we were getting so much press all the time, I remember him being like, you know, Dan, you, you can't eat newspapers. <laughs> Meaning like you're getting lots of attention about what you're doing, but eventually you've got to figure out a way to monetize this thing so that like it starts to make sense to the, the rest of the outside world. And I've used that quote a, a lot you with folks internally. You can't eat newspapers? Yeah, I love that. can't eat newspapers. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's. Uh, I want to get to to what you're doing these, now, but um, let's get to to what happened next. So you you know the company stopped growing, and um, eventually uh, you you decided to, or did you decide to step down as CEO? Or was it one of those like I'm going to go spend time with my family? No, no, no. This is uh, you know this is di like directly related to, related to you, right? Um, when we were building and scaling Foursquare around the time that we figured out, like, this is going to be more of an enterprise data business than it's going to be a consumer business. Now, remember, I had chosen to be the consumer product CEO 
off of you know Mark's advice, and that's that is how I structured my role, and that's how I structured my time, and that's that's personally what I'm interested in doing. And so you know there was a moment where it's like, listen, if we're really going to be successful, we need to get a different type of leader in here. You need someone that wakes up every morning so excited about sales teams and enterprise data, and you know just building that type of business, and. Um, you know, I think I told you this story. I was reading your book, Hatching Twitter, um, about the moment that um, you know Twitter had a conversation with Ev, who was the CEO at the time, about a leadership change. And um, you know, there was an unexpected meeting put on my calendar at one point where two of our board members were in our New York office. While you were reading this, book. I was reading the book, being like, "Oh, I know what happens when these unexpected meetings show up. I'm going to walk into work and get fired." <laughs> Right, because I was like, they're gonna they're gonna fire me, because that's the direction the company needs to go in. And of course, I went into this meeting, and it was just it was with Albert Wagner from Union Square and Ben Horowitz from uh, Andreessen Horowitz, two of our were investors. Were you petrified that you were gonna get? Yeah, I, I was. I was like, oh my god, I get fired today. What is it like to get fired? I've been fired in a long time, but I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna figure it out today. And so I sat down at the board me- at the, the boardroom that we have in the New York office, and they were just kind of chit chatting with me. And I had a moment where I like put my hands down on the table, and I was like, gentlemen, like if you if you have something to say to me, you should say it. And they were like, whoa, 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 what what's going on here? And I was like, aren't you gonna fire me today? And they're like, what are you talking about? Absolutely not. The company's <laughs> doing great. You're doing a great job. You know, it, turned, it turns out they were in New York. I think Ben was picking up his daughter from college, and Albert was just about to go on vacation for the holidays. And I was reading the book, so I had this narrative in my head. And it, 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 but that weird moment that I had with them started this conversation of like, you know, them saying, "Do you do you not think you're doing a good job? Like, what what's what's on your mind?" And that's when I was like very open about, "Listen, I was the right person to run this company for like to get it to this stage. But if we really want to grow, you need you. This, this has to be a different type of person." And they they disagreed initially. They're like, "You're the person to lead this." And you know, we had a good back and forth there, in which eventually we ended up putting a in a plan to hire some additional additional help. This is when uh, Jeff Glick, who's now our CEO, he came on board as our COO. Um, and, you know, with this kind of idea for maybe this is the person that can, um, that can uh, you know, kind of help us grow the business going forward. So that, that, that took two years to implement a plan from, like, me having a meeting with the board to, you know, actually putting another CEO in place. That's I, a two-year I, I feel like I should get some credit in the in the, the history books for, for that one. Uh, well, yeah, when we, when we Jeff should give me some of his options. <laughs> you, can, you can bring that up with him, yes. Um, so what is it like uh, going from being the guy who starts a company who um, is the, the employee number one, uh, goes through all these rounds of funding, all this craziness, all this media, um, the uh, peak valuation of over half a billion dollars, uh, to then stepping down as CEO. What's it like that first day coming back to work when you're not the CEO? Um, it was it was weird because you have to, um, the, the, you know, a lot of people do this and, and they become like chairman. And chairman means that like you have some role at the company, but you don't come to work. It's just anymore. a fancy title, right? Yeah, and then but there's chairman and there's executive chairman, and the difference is like the executive chairman comes to work because he still wants to be helpful and still feels like he can contribute. And that's you know I'm the executive chairman. I want to continue to help the company grow, but the you know my job now is to kind of get out of the way a little bit, which is hard. Like when you're used to running the 
you know, running the show and answering all the questions and setting all of the agendas, it's, it's hard to just do that and kind of sit on your hands. So tell, well, tell me the story of when you, the first day, I remember you mentioned this to me at some point, you, you, uh, you, you walked to work and the first day you went into the office, you, and you were like, Oh yeah, super, yeah, yeah. Okay. T- yeah. Tell that story. No, I, you know, I can't remember what day we did the transition, but it was, it must've been on a Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever. The next day, I was walking to the office, taking my normal path, and it just hit me that I was like, oh my God, like, I'm not the CEO anymore. Like, I don't have the stress and the pressure. And I like, laughed like a madman on the street, just being like, I, I can't believe I, I did it. I got the company to this point, and I did the two-year plan of transitioning, and I still have a role at the company where I get to do all the stuff that I want to do. And it just like kind of laughed out loud, and it like you know like you know the type of laugh where you're kind of right at the edge of crying, not because it's so funny, but because like it's so emotional, and it's just a huge cathartic release. Like there was at the company meeting, the, you know, the day before, I had a, I you know we worked forever on the transition plan and all the media, and you know we announced we announced a fundraising around the same time, and all the internal comms, and I, I remember getting up on stage. And I got to that slide, right? I had to look at the whatever 170 people that worked at Foursquare at the time and say, I'm not the one to lead the company anymore. I remember putting my hands out like this, like Jesus on a cross style, and just letting it all kind of like flow out. And it was just extremely cathartic. Was it, were you nervous before you did that? Was it a little I was scared shitless, yeah. You want to hear another great story? Oh, we love stories. you know, I was so nervous that morning of like, should I do this? Should I not? Am I doing the right thing? Even though I had worked for two years to trying to, you know, with, with my team, trying to get this transition plan in place and the fundraising, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was, I was you know, you're, always, you're doubting yourself up to the last minute. Should, should I not do it? Should I do it? You know, it, obviously it's too late to go back. But my wife had left a calendar appointment. Like she had scheduled a calendar appointment. Like a, a, it's not a meeting. It's just like a note. And it was like the nicest note about like, you know, you're doing the right thing. I'm almost like tearing up thinking about this. I'm so proud of you. You did all this stuff. Like you're absolutely doing the right thing. Jeff is the right guy. You've made the right decision. And it was like the moment, it was like the thing that I needed the most at to see. And I, I saw it like when I went to work and I'm like, let me just check my calendar, make sure nothing's going on. And it was like this sweet note oh, from Chelsea amazing. in there about like as a calendar entry um, about how I was doing the right thing, and that's that's what I needed to get through that that day. I, right, I almost so, just got weepy on you, man. No, you should yeah. to, you should totally cry. We need people <laughs> to cry on this show more often. Uh, um, so um, so you soon after this, you uh, you did something that uh, that uh, caught me by surprise. So I, 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 just to, for for listeners, um, uh, during the World Cup, was it two thousand? It was like. I mean, it, must it was one about, 2010. There was one 2014. And it was. The, it must have been the 2010. Uh, I was living in New York. You were living in New York, and we would go to uh, all all the bars and watch the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. And um, and we got uh, there was a bunch <laughs> of us that got really into soccer. Uh, I forgot for a hot moment that you played on the hit I was, team I, Alphabet City. I was. I played on the Alphabet C- C- City team. I used to take ride my Vespa down <laughs> under the Brooklyn Bridge and play. Uh, I would always run out of breath before everyone else. Uh, and um, but then next thing I know, uh, you bought a soccer team. Well, that next thing is is like eight, ten years later. Okay, but, but. still, like I mean, that, what my if you look at my corollary between us playing soccer in Alphabet City under the Brooklyn Bridge 
and the next thing about soccer that I hear from you, other than a couple of tweets and animated gifts, <laughs> is that you bought a soccer team. How did that happen? Well, hold on. Didn't didn't buy a team. We made a team from scratch. Okay. So we said, let's um, you know, hey, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be an awesome thing to build a club from scratch? Uh, let's let's try to do that. It can't be any crazier than building like a tech company from scratch. And uh, you know, a, a, a big part of the motivation was like, as a fan of the game, you think like, the U.S. You know, is the U.S. ever going to win a World Cup in our lifetime? Like, how do how does an individual fan make soccer better in the U.S.? And yeah. One of the ideas was like, why don't we make a club from scratch? And then as we make it from scratch, we'll teach other people how to make clubs, in the hopes that more people will do it, and then there'll be more clubs, and then we can unify them, and we can make some awesome soccer systems. But how do you go about making a soccer club? Do you could I start a soccer club? Anyone can. So you should read my handy guides on my Medium page about it. No, we, we I I did a bunch of research. Yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of leagues in the lower level. Everyone knows about MLS, but there's a couple different levels in what's called the U.S. soccer pyramid. And, you know, we found a league called the NPSL that exists in, um, in what's, you know, what's referred to as division four. Uh, and there's these amazing, some amazing clubs that, that are there. There's a, a club called Detroit city FC that has thousands of people coming to their matches in Detroit, a club called, you know, Chattanooga, um, uh, Chattanooga FC is that that's in Chattanooga, Tennessee, of all places, which is you know they have an amazing following there. And I'm looking at what these you know what these clubs have, have done for the community, for the fans, for the youth players, for the you know the, the, the players on the club, and saying like, why don't we do one of these? We'll just we'll do it in the Hudson Valley. There's a lot of soccer fans up there, and they have to drive two hours to go to the a match in New York City. Like, so what? So, what, so what's the name of your soccer team? A uh, club is called uh, Kingston Stockade FC. And you're the owner. Manager? I'm the chairman. The chairman. Yeah. And how many? Like, how do you get soccer players? Do you like? Do you buy them? Like, you no, know, we, we held tryouts. And right? people showed up. And not only did people show up, a lot of people showed up. And it was one of these things. That, I remember the very first try. It was like my, my friends from the city that came up. It's like, let's go. Is it? Can anyone play up here? Like, are we going to be able to put a functional team together? And we were at these tryouts, and you know, what was it? Spring of 2016. And there was, you know, we were there for five minutes before. It's like, holy cow! Like, this is this is going to work, and this is going to work in a really good way. Like, there's just a lot of talent up there. A lot of guys that had been playing for a long time that had just never never been seen like this is we're in the Hudson Valley we're two hours north of uh of New York City and there's just not a lot of scouting that goes on up there and so uh <clears throat> do you have to so you you come up with the logos and the name yep. and that you you and, and do you have to hire like a manager or yeah we hired a we hired a coach uh, I had a coach in 2000s we've, we've played two seasons so far we're, we're about to start our third season um, you know, we made a coaching change in between our first season and our, our second season. Our head coach now is this guy, David Lindholm, who's, who's fantastic. He led our team to the conference championship well, so that last was year. So the thing that was so funny was I, you, you started the soccer team and, uh, and next thing I know, it's like, they're doing, it's like one of those crazy, like Hollywood stories. They're like doing really well yeah, and, and they made it, where did they go? Um, well, we won the, we're, we're, there's about 100 teams in our league, and so we won our conference championship, which put us into the regionals, but then we got knocked out of the regionals. There's a lot of really talented teams in the Northeast, but hey, we made it far, next year we want to make it one round further. Um, you know, there's a, there's a tournament in the U.S. called the U.S. Open Cup, in which, you know, 
all teams enter and get to compete against one another. So, you know, theoretically, if we, if our team could qualify, if Stockade could qualify for the U.S. Open Cup, there's a chance that we could play a Division Two, II, Division Three, or maybe even an MLS team at some point. And so we set that as like one of the goals for our clubs. We ha let's let's make it a goal to qualify for this tournament within the first five years. And um, <clears throat> uh, and you have a. a a huge number of fans now, right? And it's, uh... it's you know, it, it's huge for, like, we're in Kingston, New York. It's yeah. a town of, you know, about 19,000 people. And, you know, our attendance record is about 1,400 people showing up at a game. So there's not tens of thousands of people showing up, but, you know, during the, during the season, like, Stockade is the biggest game in town. That's awesome. And the thing that is awesome about it, and this is totally, like, unexpected, was, you know, like, you, you put the team together, people come out, you're, you're amazed by how many people are in the stands. But I remember after our very first match, um, and all the, all the kids in the stands rushed the field, um, you know, I think our first match had 850 people, and it had to be 200 kids that rushed the field. And there's a fence that separates the, you know, the stands from the players. And um, all, all the kids wanted were the autographs to meet the players. And the guys who, you know, a lot of the guys who played in college, played out, like, they, they not used to signing autographs. They're like, well, what do, what do we sign? What do we do? And I'm like, I guess we, we, we should figure out how to do this. And the captain, this guy Jamal, stood up and is like, no one goes inside until every kid gets everything signed. That's how we do this. Like, okay, let's find some pens. And, but the, 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 story of the, the story of the club, the thing that gets me so motivated and inspired is that, like, the kids love it. And the kids are like, all I want to do is play soccer. All I want to do is play for Stockade. All I want to do is play in high school now. Like, I talk to the local high school coach, and it's like, we have twice as many kids show up at tryouts now because they all want to play soccer. Um, I keep thinking if we, you know, my goal was to start this club from scratch, to get it to financially break even, to show people how we got it to financially break even and teach people how to do the clubs. Um, and then, like, once you get to break even, you can run the club for forever. So if we keep the club going for 10 years, the kids that are in the stands now that are being inspired to play will play for our club in 10 years. And that's, like, that's my goal, is, like, keep that thing going and then to get people really riled up about it. It's, like, the, it is the, the most fun thing I've ever worked Do you give, on. like, any kind of, like, Rudy-like speeches before the games or...? Uh, <laughs> I have tried. <laughs> uh, coach is much better at him, and our captain, Jamal, is like, he, this is his thing, right? That's and awesome. I, I've learned that my, uh, my place is on the sidelines with the walkie-talkie, making sure everything runs smoothly, and I am just not involved with uh, <clears throat> I was going to say, if you had to do the Zuckerberg what CEO thing, what kind of manager are you? You're the guy on the sidelines? I'm the operations guy. The operations. I, I'm the guy that makes sure everything runs smoothly, and I've delegated all of like the you know, technical development and scouting and coaching to a team of awesome guys. So Okay, so we're, we're going to kind of wind down here, um, <clears throat> and I'm very happy that, this, uh, that we're kind of going, we're, we, we've had all these high notes, because usually the show is like by the end of it it's it's ai is going to kill us you know the sixth extinction is going to happen north korea donald trump like you know oh, i got all the all the fluff questions <laughs> you got all the fluff <laughs> questions uh no this is all it's it's fascinating to to hear how this stuff all actually happens but I, i'm going to go back and ask you a couple more questions about about you know the last what has it been 15 years running these companies and yeah, um, what, what year is it now? 2018? So <clears throat> let's, let's go back 18 years. Let's go 2000. 18 years. What are some of the, what, what's like the hardest thing you ever had to do? Um, the hardest thing I ever had to do. Um, 
I can, one of the hardest moments I've ever had was the moment that we talked about with like the decision to do the Facebook uh, or Yahoo deal or to keep going with the company. That is that is one of the hardest things. Um, but it it's specific one moments. But this the the hardest the hardest thing is to convince yourself that the next idea that you have is worth doing. Um, and this. I, I hope I do an okay job articulating this. Like to take dodgeball from a silly little side project to a thesis project to a company to selling it. Like there's so many moments there where you're like, I have absolutely no business doing this. I'm so over my head. I'm not the right guy for this. Someone else should do this. And you just, you just make it work. Right. And we started Foursquare and, and we got 30 no's from like the top VCs in the country. You're like, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm not the person to do this. Maybe someone else. Maybe I suck at this. And and you just have to forge through. Like when we had the idea to do the soccer team, it's like I I'm not the right person to do this. Like I suck at playing. I'm not even any good. But um and and just the idea of like I'm a tech guy. I don't have. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm not qualified to do this. But then you just do it, and it and it works. And I, I, this this that that doubt plagues me all the time. Like there's things at Foursquare that I still want to do that we haven't built yet with the data and technology. Where I'm like, maybe this isn't our thing to do. Maybe maybe we're not the company to do this. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe someone else should do this. And then sometimes you just have to put your foot down and be like, you know what, like. Like, fuck it, we are going to be the ones that do this. And I will be the one that makes this thing. And I will put the team together that does it. And I think there's, like, a real thing to be said for, like, believing in yourself and your own ability to do it, regardless of, like, I felt this way before I had done anything. And I felt this way after I sold Dodgeball. And I felt this way, you know, in the middle of the Foursquare hype. And I feel this way, even having like a really successful Division Four soccer team, like the next thing is too hard, it's too impossible, it's not worth doing, everyone's going to laugh at you. You know, I, I have that. I, ha I have <clears> But how do, you over how do you overcome it? You just have to have that like, who cares? I'm going to do it anyway, if no one, if I, because if I don't do it, no one else is going to do it. And if no one else does it, it will never get built and the world will be better if we do this thing. And sometimes you just have to like tell yourself to shut up and just do it. And that has been a really hard thing for me to like learn, get over. So what's, what's next? Um, I don't, I don't know. You I know, mean, like are you like, are you done? Are you like, I'm, are you gonna, you know, eventually like, is this the last tech company you start? Is, are you... Well, this one's not over yet. You know, like my child's <clears throat> still executive chairman. Like I have a desk and, and a you role. You don't have a desk. Yeah. And... So you're sitting in the cafeteria well, when I showed a, up. Yeah. But I have, you know, I have an agenda of things I want to still do at Foursquare and I want to get all those things done. You know, there's not a ton of, to be honest, there's not a lot of ton of stuff that's going on in the tech space outside of what we work on at Foursquare that really excites me. Like I don't, I don't have like some other startup that I'm itching to build. You know, like I, I do a lot of like on the ground in real life community development with the Stockade Soccer Project, and that makes me very satisfied and fulfilled. And then, you know, I'm working on trying to spin spin up this R&D lab at Foursquare that will just make crazy stuff for the sake of making crazy stuff because I feel like that's what the company should do. Like, I feel like I should, like, there, there's, there's a role at Foursquare for the grad student that was at ITP 
you know, 15 years ago. And we need to make, we need to have room to do that type of wild innovation because that's the stuff that eventually ends up inventing the future. Why is it that, two questions um, before we wrap up. Why is it that, that I, I, there's nothing I really see happening in Silicon Valley these days that really overly excites me. I mean, driverless cars are very cool and I yeah. can't wait for that to happen. They're going to save lives and I want my own pet robot one day. But, you know... I look at a lot of the technology innovation, if you'll want to call it that, that's happening. Like, and some of it's just ridiculous. You know, Juicero and blah blah blah. Like, what, what do you, are we in a lull right now because technology is not at the place? It's almost like the ideas. It's do the ideas suck, or does the technology is the technology incapable of? actually creating the, the ideas that we have today. And no, that's I, why... I think, um, I think we're just kind of at a plateau right now. Um, you know, just to correct my earlier statement about like not being inspired by technology, it's mostly like consumer technology, yeah. stuff that people use in the streets. Yeah. And I think the plateau is like, you know, the phones are kind of plateaued, right? Like the they're social not, networks have plateaued. Well, no, there's, just, there's nothing new yet. Like yeah. remember... The, you know, the moment that Steve Jobs <clears throat> held the iPhone 1 up and he swiped his finger across the glass and it worked, it was like, holy cow, that's new. That's new and that's different. You know, the moment that you could see the blue dot flashing on the, you know, Google map for the first time, like, this phone knows where I am. That's new. That's different. We haven't had a lot of, like, that's new, that's different in, in a long time. And I, I think about this stuff a lot, right? I think, like, what is the next technology innovation? It's got to be something that gets us away from, like, we're all wa walking down the street looking down at our phones. Like, that is absolutely not the way that, like, the world can evolve, right? It'll be something else. Does that mean that it's like a, a bot that whispers to you through your Apple earpods? Does that mean that it's, you know, some augmented reality display that you wear or you put in through like a contact lens? Like this stuff seems like science fiction right now, but like that is that is the science fiction that someone will stand up on stage at a keynote and show us in the same way that you know Steve Jobs uh, swiped his finger across the glass, and that's the thing that will change. Um, and I think respark a, a whole bunch of innovation, but it's just like we're it, that stuff doesn't exist yet. Like we're we're in a in a lull. All right. So last question: <clears throat> If I came to you right now and I said, "Hey, um, the board has told me that you have to leave. Today's your last day at Foursquare, um, and 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 the the power to build these technologies you just mentioned uh, exists or will exist. What 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 would be the dream thing that you would make? Um, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in, um, this idea of like, you know, like we're, we're all, like, we're all alone together or the idea of like familiar strangers, right? There's, there's all these devices, all these people around us and they're generating all these data points. And a lot of times we never get to interact with those people or meet those people or kind of get a sense of what those data points mean. And so... I really like the idea of like, trying to take all, all the data that Foursquare has and visualize it in some sense so you, you get a sense of like, like how the city is living and breathing and moving and what the masses of people are doing at, at once. I haven't really seen, like, besides for internal things, I haven't seen a lot of those data visualizations. You know, I really like the idea of you know, another, um, you know, of, of smart services that are trying to tell you about like, okay, there's something around the corner that you missed, or you just walked by someone that you need to interact with. 
Um, I like the idea of games that use all of the phones around us as non-playing characters. You know, what do you I, mean by that? Um, you know, like when you play like a you play World of Warcraft or yeah. something, like there's a bunch of human people you interact with, but then there's a whole bunch of like robot AI characters. Like, could you use real data of like where real people are to generate those types of characters? Is there some you know gaming element that's built on top of that? Can you build apps and games that change depending on where you've been or where you're going um, or where you're standing right now? You know, there's like this whole era of contextual aware computing that like we're kind of right, we're we're, we're right in the moment where it's about to start happening, it just hasn't started happening yet. And I think Foursquare pushes a lot of that stuff going forward. Um, but I think people have to in, like invent those those apps and use cases and experiences so that other people can see them and, and learn from them and be inspired by them. And um, like that's you know that's kind of the stuff I want to do at Foursquare. Like outside of technology, I don't I don't know. You know, like it, to go back to your earlier question, like. Is there a moment where you ever just not do anything? Like the idea of like not not working on something and not having a project, like it scares it scares the crap out of me. Like I have to have something to be tinkering with all the time, otherwise I go kind of crazy. And I feel fortunate to have, you know, a big chunk of that with Foursquare and like a little chunk of that with the stockade soccer stuff. And, you know, if one or two of those things went away, like we'd have to find something else. Well, that is a perfect place to end this. Thank you so much, Dennis, for uh, for taking the time. Uh, where can people follow the Stockade Football Club? Uh, so the club is called Stockade FC. It's stockadefc.com or at Stockade And if FC. they want to start their own soccer team, because I'm thinking about it right now. I'm thinking maybe like two-year-old toddler soccer, start off small. Hey, listen, start developing the players, start moving <laughs> the players to the system. I wrote this... Um, this whole, every, every season, beginning and end of the season, I write a big medium post about like how we did it, how much it cost, how much it's going to cost you, what the attendance is, what the data is. It's like, we call it open source soccer, right? And we share it with everyone and, it, and it's, it's, been, it's been really, I think, good for the sport. Um, I ha you can go to um, medium.com slash stockade FC, oh, you, you, you right? just lost them. Just, uh, just Google it. Just, just Google it. <laughs> Google startup soccer and you'll find it. All right, cool. Well, thank you very much, Dennis. This has been fantastic. I hey, thanks it. for having me uh, of course, on the show. I'm, I'm going to come uh, try out for your soccer club. Uh, yeah, we'd love to have you. That would be great <laughs> comic relief. <laughs> this is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, welcome back, Nick. That was a great interview. I'm, I'm curious, listening to it now, what do you think is the biggest difference between our current moment and the sort of, you know, entrepreneurial moment in which Crowley was, was founding uh, Foursquare? I think it's a great question, and I think an, it's also a question that I've thought about not just as in, in the current moment and in the moment that Crowley was founding Foursquare, which was not too long ago, uh, uh, just a few years ago, but what I also find fascinating is is the you know Dennis is like a good guy like he's a legitimately good guy and there are so few of those in Silicon Valley there are so many people who are jerks and um, and not nice and not thoughtful about their company and their employees and so on and um, and I recently asked someone who's been covering this industry for a long time you know what makes you know is is it that when you look at people like Dennis. Um, and you know Aaron Levy and folks like that, um, they're the, the, the small handful of good people and most of them are jerks. Why is it that so many of them are? And were people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs uh, 
equal jerks back when they were young entrepreneurs just starting out in their company. And the response yeah. I heard is that that no, they weren't. Like they, you know, they they could be ruthless and they could they could do things that were, you know, unkind to competitors and and, and even to their employees. But there's a kind of a different. Uh, a different mentality of, of entrepreneurs today um, uh, that really makes them into uh, kind of thoughtless, you know, I have to win at all costs kind of people. And um, it's a shame that there are not more, not more Dennis's out there. Is it, is it as simple, excuse me, as um, the fact that, that now everyone knows just how extraordinary the money could be? Oh, I think so. I think that back in the day, you know, the money was big, the money was huge, you know, when Microsoft and all those companies, I mean, you know, a lot of back then it was all computer chips and, um, and things like that. And I think that, that, uh, that, that now when you look at how rich these people are, I mean, it's just astounding. I mean, uh, Amazon, I mean, Jeff Bezos, 107 billion, Zuckerberg, you know, like half that, um, Bill Gates is giving his, his money away billions and billions of dollars a year and he's making more money on the investments that he has with the money he hasn't given away yet he literally is getting richer the more he gives away um and i think that uh and then you kind of see these this culture of people that um uh that just are selfish and just want to be richer and um uh and we kind of that's the world we live in today well, gee. Anyway, yes. On that, on that happy note. Well, I do think note. that there. On that, I do think that there are lots of uh, there are lots of um, good people in Silicon Valley that are working hard on projects. Uh, the ones that we don't necessarily know about are the ones that we don't hear about because they kind of has have their heads down and just getting the shit done. So, anyway, let's go out on a. Um, uh, would you like to do the thank you this week, or should I? Oh, Nick, you're so good at it. Go ahead. All right. Well, thanks to my guest, Dennis Crowley, and of course to you, John Kelly. Virtual hugs. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. I just want to take a side note, John. People don't leave reviews unless they're, like, pissed off. You should just take two seconds and just go and say, you know what? I actually like this podcast. Yeah, come on, That's everyone. It. If, if on. you like what you're listening to, leave a nice review. If you've, listened you this, well. if you've listened this far, you need to leave a, leave a review or go tell me to go to hell on Twitter. Anyway, hmm. thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. Thanks to my editors at Vanity Fair. And thanks, of course, to our sponsor, Goop. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. John, I will see you next week. Adios, Nick. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. 
follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.